0: I have often said that as pastors, when we preach a message or we preach in a series, that God allows us to uh, experience a little bit of whatever that topic is that we're going to be preaching on. And we are in week two of The Struggle is Real, and this past week, I have been as sick as I have ever been in my life. So I got a full-fledged taste of the fact that the struggle is real. (laughs) this week. And so I want to begin today um, by apologizing and allowing um, you, if you would, to extend grace to me for my voice. And, um, you know, if, if I could, I would have all my medicine up here and my, you know, all my stuff right here, like, uh, you know, Kleenex. And uh, finally, as, a, as I am a guy, uh, I didn't go to the doctor early in the week. I waited. Right, men? we do that, don't we? And I waited till Wednesday. And I had all kind of itises. Now, I'm you know, modern medicine, I'm okay. I don't need to be quarantined, but I just wanted to do, you to know if, if my voice squeaks or if I have a coughing fit in the little bit of, you know, in the middle of this, um, that it is just normal for me this week. So anyway, uh, we are in this series called The Struggle Is Real, and we are walking through week by week, a chapter a week in the book of Ephesians. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Uh, Ephesians. We're in chapter two this week. I'm really excited about what God is going to do. And I want to begin today by asking you um, a a question. Um, Have you ever received a letter from someone that just overwhelmed you? Now, for for those of you who are under about 25 years old, there was a time and a place and a day when people wrote these things called letters, and they were written by hand and pen or pencil. And uh, you would put them in this thing called an envelope and put a stamp on a return address, and you would send it to a loved one. And uh, I don't know about you, but um, when I was in college, uh, my, my mom would, uh, would write me letters in college, and she would encourage me. I mean, this was in the day before, way before texting, way before email way before any kind of social media existed. In fact, um, my freshman year in 1991, I went to Liberty University with a typewriter, if you can believe that. And it wasn't until the next year I had a computer. And uh, my mom wrote letters, and, and she, was, uh, she passed away about a little over two years ago. Um, but she was the epitome of the, the, like the quintessential great like, note writer and letter writer. I mean, like, she didn't even have to say a whole lot. They were, they were just filled with, like, just, just something rich. And she was so incredibly good at crafting letters. She had a way with words, which showed up every time I wrote a paper. She would want to see my papers, and I would just hand it to her with a lot of fear and trepidation because she was an English major And so I would hand those over to her and she'd get her red pen out and she'd circle it and graciously hand it back to me and tell me where my mistakes were. Well, my mom had a way of writing letters that really had an impact on me. And I would imagine that some of you are very good letter writers or note writers. I love it when people will take take the time to just write a handwritten note. That's something that my mom... Uh, tried to pass on to me, and I I go through seasons when I'm good at it and seasons when I'm not so good at it. But she was someone who really epitomized what it means to write a letter. And she used to tell me, Todd, the important part of a letter is not so much what you say in the meat of it, although that's important, but there's so much that is said at the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter. In the welcome or the greeting or the salutation, Greetings and salutations, right? And the closing. There's so much that's rich in there. And so she taught me to communicate a lot in just how you you begin and how you end. And I love in our journey through Ephesians and through really any of the books that the Apostle Paul wrote, any of these letters that he wrote to these churches in the first century— Because I think we can pick up a lot from what he was trying to communicate in just the opening and just in the closing. And one of the things that we may have kind of missed last week that I want to tie in today is Paul begins this letter with a phrase that is used over and over and over again. He begins by saying, grace to you and peace. And so he begins this letter that he's writing to this church He's right into this group of Christians in this really uh, large, important, influential city called Ephesus. He begins with grace and peace. When when I be- first became a pastor a few years into my ministry, I-, I received a letter from another pastor that was typed, and he ended his his um, his closing or you know when he ended he said. Grace and peace. And I remember reading that, and I thought, you know, I'm going to start using that. I I really like that, and I want to end with grace and peace. And I had a deeply spiritual reason for using that phrase or those two words, grace and peace, at that time in my, like, 30s. Because I thought it was cool. All right, that was my deeply spiritual motivation for signing my letters, grace and peace. I saw someone else do it. I modeled it, which as pastors, when we um, say model, we really mean copy. Okay, so I copied his, and I wrote grace and peace. And even to this day, I sign a lot of my letters, grace and peace. But as time went on, I began to realize that those two words and that salutation or that greeting or that closing has so much to it. There's so much that's rich in those words grace and peace. And the Apostle Paul, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, writes chapter two, or the second part of this letter that he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he deals with both of those words in an indirect manner. But he deals with it. And what you see is kind of a cross-section of what he meant when he said grace and peace. Because if I were to say those words and ask you what they mean, some of you would say grace is something that you say before a meal, right? And some of you would say peace is something that the hippies said back in the 1960s, all right? And so we have a... Kind of a a skewed understanding of those words, especially when it comes to their meaning spiritually. Because they are rich with meaning. I want to remind you something today that that, uh, Paul wrote this book of Ephesians. He wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. I want you to see this. Here's the purpose of Ephesians. It's to strengthen the church or strengthen Christ followers through through unifying beliefs and practices. And if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go and listen to the podcast from week one and get caught up because what we did is we talked about just some, some kind of context of uh, the time that Ephesians was written, what Ephesus was all about, what kind of city it was. It was a very important city um, in, in the first century. It was a place where everything kind of went through Ephesus. I compared it to Hartsfield. It was the, like what the modern day Hartsfield, Atlanta International Airport is. And so everything kind of went through Ephesus. It was the center of culture, of arts, education, commerce, business. It was really the center of, of everything in the, the modern world of the first century or in the, in the world of the first century there. And so this letter was written to strengthen them. It's a letter of encouragement, He's not dealing with any one specific issue, not to say that issues didn't exist in the church, but he is writing to encourage them. Now, there's something else that's going on during this period of time that I want to point out, and I'm not going to rehash everything I said last week. You can go listen to that on the podcast, or you can do your own research. But one of the things that's happened leading up to the first century is in Greece, and particularly in Athens you have a rise of philosophy that's happened over the past three or four hundred years. Those of you who um, studied uh, Plato and Socrates um, in college or in high school, um, you'll understand that in the, in the you know, several hundred years leading up to the first century is really where the whole Greek philosophy in the turn began to a, a philosophical, I can think for myself I can think through things. I can argue. And even in Ephesus, in the center of the town, was this amazing, some of you have been there, was this amazing theater that still parts of it, the ruins of it, exist to this day. And it was at that theater. If you sat in the theater, you would have seen a mountain range, and you would have seen the harbor that went out to the Aegean Sea, and you would have had this great viewpoint of the, really the whole city of Ephesus. That that uh, harbor doesn't exist uh, now. A, a silt has kind of filled in and, and dried it up. But in Ephesus there, even to this day, you can go to the theater, and you can look out and take a look at Ephesus. And in that theater, they would have had um, things that would have happened that would have been um, very much centered on art, but there would have also been um, discussions around philosophy. And so, with that in mind, Paul begins to write chapter two of this great book. Let's take a look at it. Let's take a look as we read. We'll read the whole thing and then we'll go back through and we'll study bits and pieces of this great chapter. Paul says this He says, like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he has this little thought that he had. I heard a pastor this week, I was listening to some different pastors this week and one of them said, I love Paul because he clearly had ADD. And and he's like, man, he just would say these random things. So you kind of get it right here. By grace, you have been saved, he says. But that's important. It's important. We'll come back to that in a moment. And raised us up, verse 6, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Now, I want to stop there. We're going to, we're going to kind of read verses 11 and, and beyond here in a moment. But I want to, I want to begin here because I want, to, I want to kind of get through the first um, uh, eight, 8 or so, uh, 9, uh, 10 verses of, uh, of this passage. Because this chapter can be broken up, just like Paul began this letter, into two sections. It can be broken up into the grace section and then the peace section. And if Paul is, is in these few chapters, chapters one, two, and three, he's communicating what we believe. He's trying to bring unity to the body of Christ in giving us um, kind of the same, like bringing us all onto the same page or the same sheet of music on what we believe about God and redemption. And so he, he describes here what we have in Christ and how God has saved us. And that's through the blood of Christ, not through works. And then the second part that we're going to take a look at in a moment, verses 11 through 22, uh, describe the peace part of things. And so we have that kind of broken up that way. And I want to um, make sure that I don't miss anything here, but I also want to um, kind of get through these first 10 verses so we can really look at verses 11 through 22. Here's why. Just a few weeks ago on Easter, we used Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 8, 9. As one of our key verses. And I want some of you who are here today who are strong in your faith to know that that's one of the key verses in all of Scripture. If you ever encounter someone that is really struggling with understanding the Bible and understanding how like, their own good works or their own behavior can't get them into heaven, this is the verse that we go to because this verse so incredibly well describes the fact that we're not saved that way. We're not saved that way. Let's, let's take a look at this from verses 1 through 3. First and foremost, Paul essentially says that once we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are dead to sin. That we're dead to sin. If you're taking notes, you can put that in there. We're dead to sin, verses 1 through 3. He says that we, are, that we have died to sin, that this conflict or this tension that goes on in our inner self, that once we ask Christ to be our Savior, then we have died to sin. And so point number one is, is that we are dead to sin. He says we're dead in our trespasses. That's just another word for sin. And he says in, in which you once walked. He says everything in the past tense here in verses 1 through 3 following the course of this world, among whom we all once lived in our passions. And so the first and uh, kind of priority that we need to understand from Ephesians chapter 2 is that we are dead to sin. But secondly, right after that, is he says that we are made alive in Christ or with Christ. We are made alive with Christ. And so what Paul does is he essentially has this kind of comparing and contrasting that that the old self was alive to sin and now because of Jesus that has been put to death. And now he says we have been made alive with Christ. It's this contrast of Two different sides. There's, there's a timeline, and the timeline is the fact that we accepted Christ as our Savior, and before we were dead to sin, and, and we were, before we were dead to sin, but now we are made alive with Christ. There are two different periods of time in the life of every believer. There's a time that we lived before Christ, and there's a time that we've lived after Christ, after we've accepted him. Now, it doesn't mean that we, in our Christian lives, will live our Christian lives and we'll live it perfectly and we'll live it sinlessly. Not at all. In fact, Romans tells us that we will continue to sin. But Paul here is is encouraging us and he wants to strengthen us to be people who live in the present of who we are spiritually. And that is not dead to sin, but, say it with me, alive to Christ. Verses 4 through 7, but God, being rich in mercy, talks about the great wealth that he has in mercy because of the great love, because of the great love with which he loved us. We're going to be singing a song here in a few minutes about that love. He says, even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, he made us, say that word with me, alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And so before Christ, we were, before Christ, we were alive to sin. And now that we've accepted Christ, we are dead to sin, even though we may continue to sin. And it's interesting because in baptism, baptism is kind of the uh, physical representation of a new Christ follower's changed life. And, and when Todd Cooper and I, we have baptism coming up, you can um, be there. I want to encourage you to be there. It's coming up on June the 4th. And uh, actually that same day, if you're interested in being baptized, take a look. It's in your worship folder. All the information about baptism is right there. I want to encourage you to come to a class. We're going to have a class in between services right back behind me uh, that I'm going to be leading. And I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized and you've become a Christian recently, or maybe it was years ago, um, I want to encourage you to be baptized because that's a physical representation of what happens spiritually and when we baptize you we'll say something like this um, either myself or Todd Cooper um, will say I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and we say these words which comes from Romans but it's echoed here buried with him in his death and raised to walk you don't hear that part by the way All right? you're underwater all right? <laughs> for a minute or two that's all Just kidding. And we say raised to walk. Some of you are like, man, I'm not going to that church again. Um, Raised to walk in newness of life. Buried with Jesus in his death and raised to walk in newness of life. And it's the same thing with our sins. They've been put to death. And now as new Christ followers, as new creatures, it's time for us to live alive. It's time for us to live with the past being the past. It's time, to us, it's time for us to live with the old way being dead. And it's time for us to live alive with Christ. That's where we get this idea of us being with Christ. And then he goes on in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He essentially says that we're saved by God's grace alone. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's the thing. In the Greek culture of that day, in the Gentile culture of that day, everything had to do with good works. It was all this philosophy that was leading people to the point of doing good, doing good, doing good. And so there was this mindset in the philosophy of the day that we could like good ourselves to heaven. And Paul levels the playing field. And he essentially says, you are not saved by anything. And I'm sure there were, there were probably more than one or two Ephesians of that day and age that were probably really offended by that because they lived good lives. And they were good, you know, Greek philosophers. They adopted that Greek philosophy, and they had taken on that, and they would argue in the theater for that, and they would debate that, and they would stand strong on being self-made men and women. And we might think that's an old first century thought, but it's really not, is it? We might think that that's something reserved for just one religion, but we do it all the time, even in our Christian culture. When we begin to stack up our spiritual advantages to think that we're good enough to get into heaven, he says, that's not what saves you? That's not what offers forgiveness of sins. He says, "Saved by God's grace alone." And then, lastly, he says, "We're uniquely created for His purpose." When we say, um, when he says that we are His workmanship, in verse ten, I love that we are His workmanship. In the Greek, it's a word "poema," which is a work of art. We get the word "poem," the English word "poem," from it. Literally uses that word. We are the creator God's piece of heart. And so he's going to use us for his glory. Listen, our good works, our good works for Jesus, our good works for God are simply a response to his offer of salvation. It's not a requirement for it. Once we get the mindset of working for him, we have to understand that is not what saves us. That's our response to God doing his work. Are you with me, church? That is our response to God doing his work. And so Paul covers this idea of grace. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. And so he's encouraging the church in Ephesus and he's encouraging you and me to operate with grace. And then we come to the second part. And this is the peace part. And it gets a little more uncomfortable here. I'm just warning you. It gets a little, it gets a little more dicey in this second section of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Paul essentially says that we are unified now because of of Christ. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, I just want to stop there for a moment. I just want to talk about this for a moment. And some of you are like, oh, please. I hope that he's not so sick and so medicated that he's going to talk about circumcision today. Please, I'm not. <laughs> no worries. No worries. The Bible essentially speaks to two different groups of people, the New Testament. It speaks to Jews, and it speaks to, you can say it with me if you understand this, Gentiles, okay? All right, you guys are with me, man. At least this side is. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. The Bible essentially speaks to Jews and Gentiles. It kind of summarizes those two racial divides. And Paul is writing to a group of people who were, Gentiles. He's writing this message to a group of people who are Gentiles but they are interacting with these people who are coming from Jerusalem who are people who have Jewish heritage yet they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. These new followers of the way and and the Jewish people you have to understand would stand strong on their practices, like circumcision and the foods that they ate. They would stand so strong on these things that were given to them by God as instruction. They would stand so strong on them that they would use them as a spiritual weapon to separate themselves from other people, even Jewish Christians of that day. And so Paul is explaining to the people in Ephesus that the the playing field now, because of Christ, has been made level. It's not that the old law is unimportant. It is important. It's not that circumcision isn't valid. It is valid. It's not that the specific types of food that they were instructed to eat or not eat was, was of spiritual importance. It was of spiritual importance. But what Paul was saying to these Gentiles in Ephesus and what he was saying also to the Jewish believers who read this is that that no longer makes you better spiritually. Those types of spiritual practices no longer make you better. You see, Jews were descendants of Father Abraham. They were God's chosen people. They were people of God. They they were people that had hope because of uh, the coming Messiah. Gentiles had no God. They had philosophy, they had their own minds, they had their own work and hard work and blood, sweat, and tears, but they had no hope of a coming Messiah. No one to save them. They were uncircumcised. They ate the wrong kind of food. And so we see in the first century culture a racial divide that has already been there for generations that is just being fueled by this new followers of the way. And Paul is essentially saying to the church in Ephesus and to us now that Christ's coming has brought peace. But we don't embrace it because we don't truly embrace the full gospel of peace. We truly don't understand all that God did. The problem of racism today and back then, the problem of divide between people groups is the idea that someone is better than someone else spiritually or in some kind of intrinsic way. And Jesus and Paul, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, begins to put an end to this idea of racial divide of some kind of conflict divide based on the fact that someone is intrinsically better than someone else. Because Jesus came, and when he came, he came to die for everyone. It is significant that Paul and these other apostles are even in a Gentile city in this day and age. And so, so much is going on to level the playing field and solve the problem of better. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. For he himself, say it with me, is our peace, who has made us both one. And, and he came and preached peace to you who were, he says this phrase again, far off, and peace to those who were near. And we see, he says, so then, in verse 19, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being himself the cornerstone. The temple itself actually divided people into different groups. The temple itself had the Holy of Holies, which is where only the high priest could go, only during a certain time during the year. You had the holy place where other priests could go, and then you had the courtyard where all Jewish people could go. There was a place that only women could go, or that women could go, and there was a place that women couldn't go. But outside, on the furthest part of the temple, was the place of the Gentiles. And Gentiles couldn't even get anywhere near the temple. And here's what Paul is saying. I don't want you to miss this. This is so important if we're going to truly embrace in our lives grace and peace. Jesus ended it. He ended that racial divide. He entered that divide of hostility. The problem is is that we we often have not allowed the grace and the peace of Christ to infiltrate our hearts. And so the problem of strife and divorce... In conflict among even church members, even in this church, not to make you un- really uncomfortable, <laughs> the problem with racism is not a problem of behavior, but it's a problem of the attitude of the heart. Because someone who had racial tendencies before can change their behavior, and in their heart, they're still, they still have that racial attitude Someone who had con- has had conflict with their spouse or husband and wife, and it is deep and it is severe, it's not natural, it's not normal, it's not healthy. They can change their behavior for a little while, but that hate is still there in their heart. The person that has a conflict with someone else that has become huge and unhealthy and gaping can, can be that like huge, amazingly div- dividing thing in, in God's church Not because of their behavior. They can change that easily. What's hard to change with the peace part of the equation is the heart. And it's interesting that he says there in verses 20, 21, 22. He says, our foundation is built on the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone of the temple of God. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You know where the house of God exists now? It's in you. For those of you who are Christ followers, it's in you. And so Paul is not being ADD in this chapter, and all of a sudden he's talking about grace and peace, grace and peace, and all of a sudden he goes into this thing about the temple. He's not being ADD in that moment. He's trying to drive home a point that our lives... As the temple of God's Holy Spirit needs to exude grace and peace. Because you see, if we say it, and we say we believe it, we got to make sure that we believe it in our heart. Jesus changed everything, and I'm going to close with this. There was a time before Jesus, and there was a time because of, of Jesus. We're in that time now. We once were dead, now we're made alive. We once were captive, now we were set free. We were once separated, now we are unified together. We once were in despair, now we're filled with hope. We were once hostile with others, now we're reconciled to others. We were once far from God and now we are able to be near to God because of what Christ did on the cross. This church is what we believe. We believe. And if this can be the foundation of our lives, it can change everything about how we behave. We don't say we just believe in grace and peace. We let it sink into our hearts. We let it infiltrate our lives because we are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. In light of who we were before Jesus and who we are because of Jesus. Our goal is to live for Jesus. And that means living with a backdrop of grace and peace. Father God, I thank you so much that you sent Jesus into this world. Not just to save us from our sins. Not just to give us eternity in heaven with you. Father God, you sent Jesus into this world to level the playing field. God, there has not been anything that we've done in human history that has ever solved the problem of racism. There's not ever been anything in human history that has solved the problem of a brother and a sister hating each other or a husband and wife hating each other or a mom or dad hating each other. There's never been in human history a treaty that has worked to its fullest extent that has ever brought lasting, sure peace when you sent Jesus into this world you sent your son to die to give us salvation and eternal life in heaven that's the grace part but you also brought Jesus into this world to bring peace and right now in our hearts God I pray that you would that your Holy Spirit would look within and find in the life of any Christ follower who is in the sound of my voice that you would help us to identify anything in our life that is not living for you. Any hate that we might have towards someone else. Any intrinsic idea that we're better than another person or group of people. God, that we have some kind of religious um, superiority based on what we do. that you would help us to realize that we have died to that God help us not to live in it anymore help us to stop just making change in our behavior that we would make true change that we would allow you to change our hearts the attitude of our hearts God I thank you so much for this example that you set that you came to bring grace and that you came to bring peace God, allow us who are here who are called Christ followers to live in the spirit of grace and peace in our marriages, in our homes, in our businesses, in our communities, in our churches. God, may we represent you well. May we live for you in how we treat other people. And God, as we do, as the struggle becomes more and more real in our lives with conflict, I pray that you would help us to understand that it's only you that can change it. It's only your love that can change us. It's only your peace that's lasting and forever. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: am a one with me your love your love so deep is washing